Today's episode is brought to you by Proven Recruiting. As an agency, Proven has helped thousands of technology professionals find new opportunities at exciting companies across the United States. They focus on the quality over quantity approach in terms of building lasting relationships with both our candidates and clients. On today's episode, we have Alex Young, and he is the co-founder and CTO of Aircover AI. They're currently building a product that integrates with your sales calls and creates a magical experience for sales professionals as they navigate those calls with existing and future customers. They're currently looking for developers that are familiar with Flutter, Go, Node.js, and everything is hosted on AWS with a primary focus of serverless. And he shares his thoughts on bootcamp students, as well as how easy it is to pick up Go and go ahead and add that to your developer toolkit. Hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Chasing Squirrels. On today's episode, we have Alex Young, who is the co-founder and CTO at Aircover. Thanks for coming on today, Alex. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. And co-hosting with Kelly Beast of Proven Recruiting. Hey, Kelly. Hey. Um, from a high level, do you want to uh, kind of give us a just a high level view? We'll jump a little bit more into the weeds in just a minute of what it is that Aircover is and is working on. Sure. I think Aircover is best put as like the solution to making every sales uh, meeting better, right? So in traditional sales calls over Zoom, you have a salesperson who's talking to a prospective customer who may not have the most up-to-date information on their product or the features of a competitor product, or maybe doesn't even uh, have the right people on the call who could answer a, a technical question the customer might ask. Aircover actually solves those problems in real time by actually giving real uh, active coaching tips to the seller and providing uh, up to the minute information about their product and competitive products that might come up during the call. And then looping in people who might be uh, really vital to that communication, say like a VP of engineering might be able to answer some call that comes up on a uh, prospective call and, and shorten up the sales cycle. All right. I have a lot of questions about that, but I'm going to circle back because I want to get into your uh, experience first. So can you give us kind of a rundown of uh, the first part of your uh, career and some of your first roles as an engineer? Sure. Um, I'll kind of start in the middle a little bit. So when I moved to uh, the Bay Area, I, I took this contract role working with uh, Google's localization team. And there I got to uh, work with a team of about seven or eight engineers uh, working on a tools platform for uh, localization translators. We were doing a lot of uh, Python development at that point. We're talking about like 2012. And uh, after a couple of years there and learning some really great uh, software development practices from Google, I uh, left for uh, greener pastures to uh, start a rival search engine company with a friend. So uh, that, 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 that experiment didn't last more than a year, but I, I learned a lot in that role too, building out a uh, you know, product from scratch and actually scaling a team from you know zero to, to eight engineers by the time by the time I, I left that position. Can you uh, give us some um, kind of some insight into what were the things specifically that you learned at Google that were were good from the uh, running the team perspective that you mentioned? Yeah, um, really, maybe the most important thing is the importance of readability in a large code base, right? Being able to actually 
uh, have thousands and thousands of people uh, contributing to one code base requires everybody to uh, you know write code that's very very legible to everybody else looking at it, and uh, you know really having proficiency in unit tests that you know drives to uh, eliminate bugs and, and produce a really scalable product. So then I'm curious, what's the mindset when you're like, all right, let's compete against Google? Because that is sure. not a, a small like thing you're trying to conquer there. But yeah, I like it. so uh, really it was it was one of the friends that I met at Google who talked me into the idea, and we we both left to uh, you know to join this uh, you know this this founding team. Uh, you know the the idea was pretty good. It was uh, an NLP solution, basically comparing corpuses of documents in like scientific and engineering domains. Maybe you analyze a, port, a patent portfolio and find cross purposes for different technologies. Or if you're talking about like a drug portfolio, maybe you could identify the next like uh, you know off label use for a drug that might be a billion dollar discovery. It was a, it was a pretty pretty good idea, but I think that there were some execution problems with the uh, with the, uh, the the founding uh, members of that company. So it wasn't the idea that was broken. Yeah, I think it was uh, communication problems between the founders themselves. There was a lot of like squabbling and things like that that weren't really a healthy environment to be in. So you, you kind of run into a few of those things. If you work at enough different companies, you'll find people that work together really well and people that don't. So, yeah. What were some of the things you learned? Because that was really probably your first time in hiring for the team, like especially a founding team, which is super important. What were some of the lessons learned there? Well, really, it's really about acculturation and making sure that all of the people that you hire communicate really well together again and uh, work together as a team to, to build a great product. So we sourced from uh, people in our own networks, you know, really great engineers that we'd worked with in the past and also hired some people from some boot camps and really some of the best people, uh, you know, in that you know, job really came from the boot camps and, and we're pretty green to the experience, but uh, you know, they, we've, we've worked together for, for years and it's, it's been a really uh, fruitful relationship with a couple of those guys. So. This is a bit of a tangent, but I'm curious because I used to run a boot camp in San Diego. And so I'm curious, a lot of hiring managers have hesitancy in hiring for boot camps, but it sounds like you actually had a great experience. So can you talk a little bit about uh, why you think your experience was better than most and what it is that most engineering managers are missing in that regard? Yeah, I think that if I look back on people that I've hired from boot camps and also from traditional CS programs, that you really have... Um, a lot of the same experiences, people who come into a role with the idea that they're going to learn new things and, and grow and, and uh, build stuff as a, as a team do well, and people who maybe are siloed and don't think about, you know, uh, their, their job is, is highly communicative, don't so well. And a lot of the time when you look at people that go into a boot camp, they have a lot of skills that they've uh, learned outside of software development that are really pretty germane to, to the area itself. You know, things about, you know, working together and being uh, innovative and uh, just, you know, they bring a variety of perspectives, I guess is what I'd say. Gotcha. So you went through the first uh, startup that you guys started on your own. And then where did you go from there? Yeah. So then I actually, I, I got really lucky and I was recruited to join a uh, user analytics company um, 
to head up their API engineering team. They had they didn't have a public API, but they needed somebody who had a lot of experience building and scaling out APIs, which is a large component of what I'd done at Google and then Search Lateral. And uh, you know that that was a really good break for me because uh, that company had a terrible name but a great product. They were called Criticism, and that's just like the worst pun. But, you know, six months later, they changed their name to Aptelligent. The product was really, really great. They had uh, an SDK that was bundled with about 23,000 applications on about a billion devices. And we were just really taking the, you know, insights from every time your app crashes on your phone and trying to tell developers what the best thing they could do to, to fix their application was. And, uh, you know, that was a really great opportunity for me because that company, unlike the one before, was founded by people who actually do communicate really well with each other. And those actually are my co-founders for, for this new venture, uh, you know, AirCovers. Oh, that's awesome. So did you go straight from that company to AirCover or how did that work? Yeah, so um, Aptelligent, we you know grew that company. We grew it from a team of about 15 engineers to 35 by the time that we sold the company to VMware. And I took a role at VMware for a year, and then I left to uh, you know start something or see some other opportunities. Um, and I actually moved to Switzerland, and I oh, headed nice. up an engineering team in Switzerland for a uh, ed tech company called Cloud Academy where we actually help engineers learn the skills that they need to do things on AWS and GCP and Azure. Um, again, that was a very different experience managing a team of mostly uh, Italian speaking engineers in, in Southern Switzerland, helped that company through a bunch of hurdles and eventually sold it and moved back to the United States to start AirCover. So I'm curious, what were some of the things you learned education-wise as to how people learn online or maybe how they don't learn online or some best practices if people are building education software just out of curiosity? Yeah, so I think the success of education software really boils down to a couple of things. One is measuring progress through the, the courseware itself. And the other one is engagement. So we focused a lot on engagement at Cloud Academy and making sure that People knew, you know, where they were in terms of like their progress versus their peers or in terms of their own personal goals and what steps they needed to uh, take to get to the next level. And then doing active skill assessments. So doing a lot of quizzes and, and comparative exercises, hands-on proving that people could complete labs that were on AWS, for instance. Those were all really crucial to making sure that engineers were getting the benefit of the software that we provided. And so you are currently at uh, Cloud Academy, and then you've started a company before. And so what was it that convinced you that you were like, all right, this, this time's going to be different? I like the idea, the team, or what was it? Sure. So, um, you know, I was looking around for the next thing, trying to figure out what what made sense. And the, uh, the you know, uh, founding uh guy behind uh, Aptelligent just gave me a call and said, hey, we should start something together. We kicked around a few ideas and AirCover is really the one that, that stuck. The thing that really stuck out about it to me was the fact that I'd been on so many, uh, you know, been in, involved in so many deals at Cloud Academy and, and companies before where maybe the deal would be uh, 
delayed because they didn't have the right person on the call to, you know, to resolve some question. And that can mean a deal might get delayed by three or six months in some cases. It also might mean that you're you're going to lose out on a on a uh, a, a great solution for a customer just because they can't identify it. So I kind of want to dive into the product a little bit, and uh, I know Kelly will have questions, so if she wants to jump in because she's curious because I know she's on Zoom just as much as I am. So the uh, if you're meeting with a client, what are can you give us like two or three like use cases of like actual things? Do they like pop up on the screen, or they pop up in my email as I'm talking, or like? Uh, how does that work when I'm like, how does it help guide me as I'm having that conversation? I'm just curious. Sure. So as the seller's perspective in a zoom meeting, they're going to see contextual information about who the person is that they're talking to. Actually, that's the number one feature that we hear from, uh, sales leaders that they really want on calls is actually just to see who they're talking to, because maybe they're talking to, uh, you know, several people on a zoom meeting, our active speaker detector will actually show the LinkedIn profile of the person that they're talking to, any previous notes and action items that they've had from previous calls and uh, identification about, you know, maybe the person is the champion of the organization or an end user or something like that. So they know what kind of message to deliver to that individual. So if I was trying to sell something to Kelly and she Mm -hmm. started talking, then uh, her LinkedIn profile would pop up as we're talking in a Zoom meeting. That's right. And you you would also see information about maybe the contextual information that Kelly's speaking about. Maybe Kelly's mentioning a competitor and that comp- competitor has some information on in our system. We might pop up some, you know, uh, chart explaining the differences between the product you're selling and the competitive product that Kelly had mentioned on the call. I've <laughs> so how does it <laughs> what's happening? So the so the, how does it it's pulling that from like natural language processing? Is that kind of how it's like? Yeah. So we'll we'll take a, an active transcription of the call and actually feed uh-huh. that through our discovery engine, and that's going to feed from you know ultimately sources that the organization themselves have provided. So we're talking about you know, product information that uh, the sales team is has up, uploaded, you know, marketing information, the marketing team's uploaded, uh, you know, uh, a lot of sales organizations have a thing that they use that are called kill sheets, and they're actually just competitive information uh, sheets. They might not be well disseminated within an organization, but air coverage actually will highlight those, bring them right in, into focus at the right time. And then will all of the things that pop up, um, whether it's her profile or information about a competitor she mentioned, does that all integrate with like Salesforce or HubSpot or whatever they have and it goes into there or how does that work? Yeah. So we're working on integrations with HubSpot and Salesforce. Um, obviously I think Salesforce is the number one, one target for that kind of information. Uh, we're using a deal central uh, centric uh, approach to collecting and aggregating this information. So maybe a company, a partner company might have two or three concurrent deals going on at a time. So we'll organize those things appropriately. Gotcha. By the way, um, Jeff, these are a lot of the same questions I got sidetracked on during my intake call with Alex as a salesperson. <laughs> it's so hard to teach a salesperson just the nuances and the moving pieces. So to think that you can train technology to be smart about it and intuitive. Um, at first, it sounded like really unbelievable. But then I started thinking there are a lot of processes and like steps that if you could just remember to automate or to like have someone chime in on, 
um, you'd actually do better in the sale because the other thing about sales, sorry for my tangent, is that it is very emotional. And so if I get emotionally into the conversation or I'm trying to like overcome objections, sometimes I forget like the workflow or the strategic part that just plays into it. And so that was the takeaway for me is if that was the assistant kind of keeping me on track or supporting some of my comments, then it wouldn't have to be such a harsh sell or it could be just a little bit more smooth, I think is, is what I could use from it. So <laughs> I got excited as a salesperson for sure, but um, transitioning a little bit to the technology, Alex, can you tell people what tech stack you've chosen to use on the platform? Um, maybe how mature it is or how it, how it looks at this point and where it's going. Sure. So that's uh, something that I'm pretty excited about. It's it's easy to get too excited about the engineering sides of uh, you know products versus the actual product side of it. But yeah, this is this is what I really like to talk about. Um, so for our backend languages, we're supporting. We've initially supported Go and a little bit of Node.js, but most of the application is is written in Go hosted on AWS using API gateway to uh, you know serve uh, the, the the API itself and then uh, really everything's running uh, without any servers it's all running on AWS lambda so uh, no EC2 instances spinning up or down we'll probably actually wind up doing a little bit of that with some of our trans- real-time translation work but uh, I'm going to keep that pretty minimal if we can. And then on the front end, we're also doing something a little different too, and that is using uh, Google's uh, Flutter uh, for for the website itself, so that we can use one code base for mobile and desktop, and actually ship a uh, WebAssembly binary to the desktop, so you don't even have to like have a JavaScript translation layer at that point. Um, and Flutter, for those out there not familiar with it, is actually uh, you know coded in Dart, which is um, you can think of it as a, a lot like JavaScript in a lot of ways, maybe without some of the pitfalls. Just mentioning, I, I think I caught one of the advantages is that it's a single code base. Yeah, it's a single code base across mobile and desktop. And it also gives you a, uh, a binary that you can ship right into the web browser. The, the client doesn't even, you know, or the, the end user doesn't need to do anything special. But instead of executing JavaScript, they're actually, you know, executing like native code on whatever platform they're on. This might also be a tangent, but is this the same functionality as React Native in that hybrid approach? Yeah, so React Native is uh, really focused on the uh, mobile development itself. I don't think that they actually have a React Native for the web. I could be wrong. Maybe something's been released recently, but um, it's sort of it's sort of like React Native if you added a, uh, a web uh, component to your uh, existing iOS and Android components. Okay. I feel like people that are on legacy systems right now are super jealous of you because you're getting to start from scratch and thinking of these things from an optimization standpoint and, and just the usability piece. I think it's the same for the serverless part, right? That kind of has the same benefits. 
Yeah, the serverless has benefits in terms of uh, you know scalability and maintainability too, because you know our our load can vary throughout the day, and maybe you want to have uh, a whole sales team hit the application all at you know five o'clock uh, central time or something like that. Uh, we don't have to do anything special to uh, our load balancers or elastic scaling groups. It's just sitting right there in our AWS Lambda. As if I know what any of that means. It's good. It's good. It's good. <laughs> Someone's going to appreciate all of that. And the other thing I do want you to go into that may go a little over my head. Um, having chosen Go, I definitely think it's becoming more and more adopted. I'm, I'm seeing it more frequently in the market. But I still think there is, well, there is a large chunk of developers that have never used it. So can you talk a little bit about the syntax tied to that and maybe, you know, give people that that perspective of how easy it is to transition over or kind of what that experience might be for someone that's interested, but maybe isn't coming with Go experience? Yeah, so I think uh, the way to explain Go is in terms of C. So Go is very similar to C in a lot of respects, but it doesn't have a lot of the um, the legacy and baggage that C brings along with it being a really ancient language. So Go has less opportunities to shoot yourself in the foot, and it also has concurrency built right into it with its it's kind of uh, gimmickly named uh, coroutine thing called Go routines. So you can run a lot of multi-threaded applications that can concurrently talk to each other through a shared thread pool that won't, uh, you know, run into a, a lot of race conditions. So it's easy for someone with C to transition. You'd say Python, Java. Maybe what is like the hardest transition from someone? using a, a different backend language right now? Well, that would be hard for me to guess because my experience with backend languages is not comprehensive, but um, I would say that it's uh, pretty approachable for people who are familiar with Python and with people from Java. Um, maybe not so much from like uh, C Sharp or something like that, but it's definitely a, a modern declarative language with great documentation and a very active community. Um, I think maybe the, 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 the point that most uh, Go developers maybe would have some uh, little quibbles with would be in like version management for packaging or something like that. But uh, that's, that's definitely being improved too. Cool. So then why did you choose it? Thinking back, is it just the latest and greatest or like we mentioned with a single code base or what was your motivation? Yeah, I just think it's a it's a highly scalable uh, language that I can, uh, you know, write a lot of uh, low level things in that work on a very performative way. And it's also um, not a lot of boiler boilerplate to uh, you know write some new HTTP handlers or something like that. So, yeah. Okay, I have two more questions. One is if you can give a quick heads up on how far along the platform is. Is there a lot of greenfield development still to be had? Kind of like what would a new engineer be stepping into? Sure. So um, right now we're doing a lot of active work on that uh, Go code base, you know, uh, producing new HTTP endpoints to support our front end. Uh, on the front end side, obviously, we're doing a lot of product development around those 
uh, Q&A things that we talked about around the, uh, you know, the battle cards or the, the kill sheet information that I discussed previously. And then there are a bunch of opportunities to be involved with the, the transcription service and the, the real-time uh, analysis of what's being said on the call. Um, we've done a whole bunch of work around the active speaker detection. We have a uh, MVP that, that we're uh, beta testing right now uh, on the Mac platform, and we're hoping to expand to uh, Windows 2. Is that how the NLP will be matured? Is that based on, I think you just mentioned listening in on either real sales calls, mock sales calls, like how do you get that side of the business up and running? Sure. So I think the NLP technologies are are pretty uh, standard for an application like this. Basically, what we'll be doing is using a, um, a TFIDF uh, algorithm to, uh, you know, detect the um, most appropriate documents from a corpus of documents that you know are being discussed on the call. TFIDF is just a term frequency uh, inverse document frequency. It's an algorithm to take maybe the words that are most common in a document but are least common in a group of documents. And if those words match what's being discussed best, then we can recommend that document. So it sounds to you like the platform's super customizable. You go into a, co a company, you're learning about their product, you're grabbing those documents, and that's where it can pick up the pieces. Yeah, so um, we certainly have a lot of opportunities for companies to upload documents that are you know relevant to their business, and then we also have uh, tie-ins to um, you know human resources that can be uh, brought into the conversation to help out when our application just doesn't have the data it needs to to help help drive those uh, the answers to the questions that are being asked on the call things like slack integrations where a uh, question could be you know suggested to the seller the seller could say oh yeah this is definitely a question that's being asked on this call that i haven't been able to answer and just press go and we'll ask that in a, a sales question slack channel and then the next time that question or a similar question comes up aircover actually has that in its document uh, history and it can suggest that to the the next the next customer who's interested in the same thing i think the last thing i'm thinking about as a salesperson is you could also identify the most common objections, mm -hmm. common concerns, and those can be pre, pre-populated or kind of like pre-imagined as far as like how to overcome them. Because that is like a very, I'm having nightmares from my sales days of just like how many times you heard that same you know objection and like having that that um, kind of empowered message already pre-planned. So. It sounds exciting to me. The, the last thing I want to ask you for people listening in is just if you can give a, a high level perspective or just insight on your leadership style, because working with you and, you know, a small handful to start, I think it's really exciting for them to hear like kind of what your approach or, or philosophies are. Sure. So um, you might have picked up on it earlier. I think communication is a really big, important thing and uh, creating teams that really that really communicate well together. I think makes or breaks a product. And, you know, in order to do that, you might think, well, communication, that sounds great, but what do you, what do you actually mean there? And I, I mean things like 
um, analyzing problems as uh, failures in your processes rather than failures in your people, actually going through root cause analysis of problems when they do occur, kind of taking some lessons from the airline industry and, and, and making sure that, you know, we don't, we don't crash planes every week because we keep doing the same thing. It's, it's not about the people, it's about the checklist, right? So um, doing those sorts of things, creating a, a, a fun atmosphere where people actually like, like coming to work, even that if that's remotely and and working together to, to solve creative problems together and really also um, working with people to, to understand where um, their skills are are you know are best suited in the in the industry itself and uh, you know what their desires are to, to help further the company I think some of the best ideas I've seen for products have come from engineering you know uh, individual contributors and that's something that I, I highly uh, value in my teams. Quick question on the uh, hiring process itself. What are some of the uh, hiring mistakes or maybe hiring best practices that you've come across as you've been hiring engineers over the course of your career that you uh, now use? Yeah, so I think uh, maybe the biggest thing I could say is engineering organizations um, do themselves favors if they have a very uh, standard process for evaluating candidates. So um, I think it, 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 it's really useful to have uh, standard sets of criteria that you evaluate engineers on and to try to think about not only their technical performance, but their, uh, their, the fit that they would have on a, on a given team. Um, another thing I would say is it really is uh, important to have a lot of diversity in engineering organizations, both in like you know, the different uh, human criteria that we think of as diversity and diversity of thought and background, because all of those things contribute to uh, creative and different ideas when it comes to problem solving. And I have kind of a, I just wanted to circle back on some of the Go stuff real quick, just because I had a question and I've never used Go, is, uh, so is it, does it kind of work like um, Python in the sense that some of the data science libraries and you can use like machine learning and stuff is is that kind of how it works with Go or how does natural language processing like integrate with Go are there libraries for it or or how does that work I'm just curious yeah so for some of the NLP stuff we probably will not use a lot of Go I think there are better solutions out there as you said for Python and for Java but um, goes goes interesting from like uh, if you think about a uh, python context uh, it's it's a little different because it doesn't have it's not an object oriented language right it's it's more like c and you have things like uh structs to uh, uh have polymorphism sort of things like that gotcha kelly got uh race conditions natural language processing serverless she was learning all the things today that was awesome cool is there anything else about uh, air cover that you want to share with us that we didn't cover already? Well, I think the other thing is that, um, you know, from the inception of, of the product, uh, Andrew, that's our CEO and myself, really have set out to build a, uh, a product that end users will think of as magical, right? So our goal in, you know, in launching the product and, you know, customer traction is really about whether it just sort of magically helps improve communications every time. And that's really what we're trying to do. I think it's a, it's a fun problem to, to try to solve. Awesome. Well, we appreciate having you on, Alex. Anything else uh, you have, Kelly? 
Nope, I just have to go find some really excited, motivated developers. <laughs> I like it. Thanks for coming on, Alex. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate it. See ya. Bye. Today's episode was brought to you by Proven Recruiting. As an agency, Proven has helped thousands of technology professionals find new opportunities at exciting companies across the United States. They focus on the quality over quantity approach in terms of building lasting relationships with both our candidates and clients. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe.